Good morning and happy Sabbath. This is the 13th Sabbath, which means we are concluding our study on the book of Genesis. I am thrilled to see what God is going to do as we leave Joseph in the pit and we move to Joseph's reunion and reconciliation with his family. As always, I'm joined by a colleague, except today we have a very special guest and we'll introduce him to you in a minute. But before we do any of this, can I invite you to pray with me as we ask for God's blessing? Father, we want to thank you because you accompany us, whether we be in pit experiences or whether we are called to the palace. We want to thank you because you imbue every single one of these instances with purpose. And so as we look at your plans for your people, we simply would ask, Lord, that you make our conversation purposeful. We ask that you accompany us, that you stay with us, that you continue to speak into us, and that you speak through us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as I promised, we have a colleague of mine. Today we have the community pastor for Anthem, which is our contemporary service here at Loma Linda University Church. Jesse, how are you, my friend? Jesse is a man of deep prayer, deep insight, deep thought. And so I'm very excited to be having this conversation on the book of Genesis with you. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Jesse. Oh, uh, well, I grew up in Washington State, so being down here in the summer is, uh, is an adventure. Um, but uh, I, um, yeah, I grew up Adventist, and, and when I was about 16, I think I met Jesus for myself, and that was a big moment, um, and went to uh, Walla Walla University, and then um, pastored for uh, five years in Washington Conference, and now I'm down here. Uh, serving with Loma Linda, and so it's, uh, it's yeah, it's really great. Well, it's so. fantastic to have you here. Um, really, it really strikes me some of the things you do at Anthem, how intentional particularly you are uh, around the idea of building community and actually trying to give flesh and sinews and bones to what we do in our worship experiences and have that become something that people take with them throughout the week so that's that's just an amazing amazing thing that you are doing with that community so yeah. we just want to affirm you well thank you now everybody knows uh that we talk we talk a lot about football here and food and scripture so are you a football fan i am yeah and if you're from Washington, that might might that be then that you are a Seahawks fan? You would think that. My dad grew up in New England, so I'm a Patriots fan. Oh my goodness! So I don't know if that's a bad thing or not here, but uh, yeah. So I grew up as a Patriots fan, and then we got lucky with Tom Brady. So that's most people assume that I only root for the Patriots because of Tom Brady, but no, I was before. Well, everybody has to give this this disclosure, I think, and this disclaimer when you talk about the Patriots. My family, as our viewers know, uh, is from the New England area, so oh, yeah. they're big Patriots fans. I, I am not, um, but there's no wrong answer here, Jesse, when it comes to a football team <laughs> other than the Dallas Cowboys. There, exactly, absolutely. Uh, you I'm can root you. for anyone else except the Cowboys. We cannot <laughs> have any more Cowboys fans, so we're kind of looking through the highways and byways of North America to find anyone who is not a Cowboy <laughs> fan, invite them to work on our staff. So, Jesse, we're talking here about uh, Genesis 46, and it's been a journey. We've been, throughout this quarter, looking at the book of Genesis and kind of how God is developing this idea of covenant throughout the book, the promise of land 
and the promise of a home for people that are displaced. Mm -hmm. And so we close in this reunion uh, with Joseph calling back uh, Jacob to Egypt in kind of this moment of reconciliation. Uh, Last week, we chatted a little bit about this, and I kind of, I want to get your thoughts on this. So picture this, uh, Jacob has lived his whole life with the trauma of losing Joseph. And sometimes trauma has a way of making us alter our perception or the way we interpret reality. We interpret reality from a place of pain rather than a place of hope. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, has become uh, Jacob's rhythm, at least in his life. And so he hears from his sons that Joseph is alive. And so right before we jump into our central text, just as giving you, uh, giving our viewers some context, uh, Joseph's siblings tell their father, Joseph is alive. Mm -hmm. And I want you to just linger over with me on the last part of verse 26, which is Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. Yeah. So he's get they're getting really good news. Mm-hmm. But trauma allows him to approach this good news with reticence. The, the ESV says he, he was he became his heart became numb. Wow, that's a great translation for yeah. that. Yeah. And here you and I work attempting to give people this good news. Mm-hmm. Jesus is alive. And he is the ruler of the world. Mm -hmm. And somehow that saying clashes with the trauma, with the numbness that people are experiencing in your capacity as you try to foster community and fill them with the good news. What are some hindrances that you find uh, that cause people to maybe be numbed to the reality of the gospel? That's a really good question. I think... One of the biggest things that I've seen is is family. Um, I mean, we're talking about family here, but just the the pain of things that happen within a family. Um, mm. And it's not a like-for-like comparison because here Jacob has lost his son, um, but I think there's other things that get lost in family. So mm-hmm. you, you may be the, the, the child of a, of a father who wasn't really around um, either physically or just emotionally wasn't present. Um, you could be the the child of a mother who was maybe overly present, and you lost kind of that sense of independence. Mm-hmm. There's all, I think there's all sorts of trauma that can happen within that. Let alone the even deeper senses of trauma that can ha- come from abuse and, and other things like that. Um, but I think family trauma, or the at least even if we wouldn't necessarily call it trauma, like capital T trauma, there's little things in our lives that that stick with us, and maybe a, a, a mom who never, never ever affirmed you, <laughs> and so then that becomes, excuse me, that becomes the, the, the lens through which you see God. And so there's a numbness around that where it's like you always feel like you, if, for instance, if, you're, if your mom or dad never affirmed you, you feel like you always have to be good enough, do more mm. in order for God to, to accept mm. you into his presence or to accept what you've done. And then, and then in turn, what you, what you do is never good enough. So then when someone can talk about the love of God, it, your heart is almost numb to that because the way you interpret love is through that idea mm-hmm. of, I have to earn it. I have to gain it. I have to do more. Mm-hmm. And so that, maybe that's just one, one interpretation of, of, of how I've seen it. And, and there's so many nuanced versions of that same idea. But what you're saying, I think, really strikes and really hits home because we're talking about this family and not unlike our families, right, they're dealing with a lot of baggage and you see all this trauma that they're carrying. And it yeah. looks like this generational trauma continues to be passed on yeah. from one group to another, from, you know, Isaac, who plays favorites to now his son who also plays favorites and how that's impacting the familiar dynamics. And so I think what you're saying really strikes me um, because, for example, when when somebody tells someone about the good news of the gospel Mm -hmm. and a father who loves you and you're dealing with a history uh, of familiar familiar trauma yeah. where your father maybe wasn't present mm-hmm. or wasn't the best at displaying love or acceptance or compassion. Mm-hmm. There is a numbness and there is always the temptation 
to understand God through those lenses. Yeah. And obviously that, that devolves into toxic theologies, mm -hmm. a way of interpreting scripture that is also uh, less than perfect. So as a pastor, particularly yeah. dealing with a community that I think has grown up with a rather cynical view of religion because sure. of all the baggage that it has. How do you get through and yeah. pass that trauma to tell them, hey, this is the good news. Jesus is alive. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because in more progressive spaces, the the trauma has caused a numbness to the call of God, I think, mm. because on the one hand, there is a rejection of a lot of the the what might be termed more traditional or conservative pieces. Um, and there is, I think, in some ways, a right rejection of some of the really negative aspects of, of, of those ways of, of, of thinking. Um, but then what that becomes is it lumps any sort of call of God to, to act a certain way, to live a certain way, that becomes oppressive and, mm -hmm. and difficult. And so I don't know if I'm particularly answering your question in its entirety, but what I think I've seen is, is it's funny because the, 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 the answer on the back end is not, um, is not to even more so talk about God's love because there, there is a, there is already a sense of that. And that is where people have come to God loves me, but then they reject all of the mm -hmm. called to something. And so weirdly enough, I think the answer is actually a call back into the things that might've caused you trauma. Um, but, but with the idea of that God loves you, mm. God loves you and he is calling you to, 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 uh, to follow him and maybe some specific ways for your life that can be meaningful and can actually reverse the, the experience of trauma. Or maybe not so, so much reverse it. Maybe that's not the right way of thinking about it. Uh, but can cut when you, when you face it, there, it, it becomes less of a powerful force in your life, I think is maybe a better way. Oh, I love so, that. I yeah. love that. I, I love that because it, it hints at this call that Christ has invited us to, and that is to become incarnational mm -hmm. in the way we, not only in the way we act, but in the way we live. Um, that kind of is connected, I think, to the text. So um, I'm looking here at verse 27 uh, of chapter 45, and it says, but when they told him, everything that Joseph had said to them. And when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so much that we're going to flood you with information, mm -hmm. but rather we're going to show you. We're yeah. actually going to become incarnational. And mm -hmm. Through that attempt at us actually deciding to live into, as you're saying, yeah. into a particular way of being, mm -hmm. you, your spirit then is revived. So it's yeah. not as much that I have to have a set of doctrines or a, uh, a set of faith presuppositions, but rather it's kind of this invitation to allow myself mm -hmm. to be invited to live a certain type of life and that yeah. practice revives my spirit i think it, what's what's interesting is he see like you're, what you're hinting at is that he sees something and that's what begins to shift his 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 hope really because mm -hmm. i think that's what trauma does to us trauma tells us something about us and it t keeps telling us that long after the event or events have occurred so you, you keep getting told a message, um, I'm not good enough, or I, I should have, I should have done something different or whatever it is, whatever message you keep hearing that over and over again. And what's interesting about the call to live, to call to step out and to start doing and to start facing some of these traumas or these, these different things in life is that once you, all the information in the world will not reverse that message. Mm. You actually have to face the message and step out and say, am I good enough? And you know, everyone can tell you you're good enough, but then you actually have to face that in your life through some sort of action. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when it begins to shift. And it may not, and for him, and we kind of see in the beginning of verse 46, it takes God showing up at another time for him to really believe it. But he starts to believe because he sees something. And then he starts walking in that direction towards Egypt. And that's when God shows up and so there's there's almost even a faith of like I believe if I if I face the trauma if I face what what I've experienced in life, then then maybe maybe that trauma will be reversed yeah. or, or or healed or or whatever it might be. 
Yeah, and and Jesse, it takes, I think, and you're so right on that, it takes living with a certain degree of reckless faith. Um, So there's uh, Ron Heifetz, whom we've referred to a few times here, he's a professor of leadership at Harvard University, says that the primary problem we often get to is we have a challenge. And he's talking to organizations, but I think we can apply this to our own life. He says there's two types of challenges that we face. We face these technical challenges, and then we face adaptive challenges. And technical challenges can be resolved by through information. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I learn enough, if I prepare myself enough, if I ask enough people, then I can solve this problem. Yeah. I think trauma, because... Trauma causes you, as I think you're pointing out so astutely, it causes you to begin to deal with a narrative mm-hmm. and it sucks you into this narrative. No amount of information around you is going to challenge that narrative. Yeah. So Kaifet says, well, then there's, these, uh, this, there's this other type of problem, which is an adaptive problem. And that one, it actually changed it it actually takes reframing your whole paradigm and mm-hmm. i think that's what you're that's yeah. what you're hinting at it takes me doing something different whereas up to this point jacob is very content mm-hmm. living where he lives because after all this has been the land that was promised to him yeah. it takes reframing and taking a risk and shifting his paradigm walking towards Egypt mm-hmm. for, for him to become attuned to the presence of God. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, that he, he has this deep loss in his life, and yet he thinks he's where he's supposed to be, and he's not quite sure what to do with that. And weirdly enough, it takes leaving the place that he thinks he's supposed to be mm. to go find that the, the, the fulfillment of that loss or the, the filling of that loss is actually elsewhere. I mean, I, that's, that's a weird thing because, oh, man, I wonder if it's, almost to some degree that you can hold on to the promise of God or something like, well, if I just keep going, then I'll, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have peace. If I just keep going to church every single week and if I just live how I'm supposed to live, then I'll have some sort of blessing mm. as a result of that. But I think what we find in real life is that you can do things perfectly and everything will still go wrong. Mm-hmm. And you can live just like you're supposed to and someone will still, still take advantage of you. And you can do everything right and it feels like God's not blessing you. And what's interesting is it seems like what God is saying is that in in a in a in a wise manner, there is an element of stepping outside of the bounds of what you think you have to do, and God is there too. And 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 here is he lost his son, the one that he loves so much, and he actually has to step out of what he thinks God's plan is. And then God shows up to him along the journey and says, Hey, yeah, actually, I will make you a great nation in Egypt. That's that can happen too. Um yeah, it's just such a it's a it's a shift for us to think of that. It's a it's an enormous shift because I think you're you're really on to something. It's not just him, it's it's his father and his father's father mm-hmm. that have been promised their whole life, their whole faith walk, their journey with God has been driven by this desire to fulfill this promise and the prom- the promise is a place. Yeah. And so it seems like they are operating with under this idea that if if you follow God then things are supposed to turn out okay. Yeah. And that's the paradigm and I think that's the paradigm that at least Joseph yeah. has been called to challenge. Yeah. Because Joseph has done things right throughout his life and yeah. things haven't always worked yeah. out. And so maybe maybe it's just stepping out mm-hmm. um, of, of these environments that you think are the places that God wants you. Because let's face it, Jesse, if, if I feel like I'm dealing with a loss, whatever that might be, and I'm coming to church and I'm praying faithfully, I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing everything I know I'm supposed to do, and still nothing is changing. I'm still dealing with this deep sense of loss. I can foresee some frustration beginning yeah. to billow up. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm doing everything right. And I think that frustration leads then to resentment. And so in, yeah. we start resenting God because it's like, I'm doing my, I'm keeping my end of the bargain. When are you going to step yeah. in? And that, I think leads us then to have a a certain toxicity to our relationship with God Mm -hmm. 
So maybe God is saying, hey, you need to step out from this environment that you believe brings you meaning and security and safety, and you need to move and see how I, I'm able to operate in other places, yeah. in other contexts. Yeah, in the unexpected places where I don't expect God to be there because I've only put him in this mm. box over here. And then you step outside of it and he's like, oh, God's here too. Yeah. I think, I think there's wisdom, you, there's always the element of there has to be a, 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 a wisdom about it, wise discussion, discussion with wise people in your life right. and, and, uh, and a lot of prayer and, and seeking even in that. I think that we can recklessly step out of the bounds of what God is, is, is calling us to or, or step out of the bounds of where we are, where we think God is, right. and we're actually stepping out. And God's like, I'm still here, but this is not a good place for you. But I think sometimes we get so stuck in a place and we put God there and we stay there and we stay there and we stay there. And God's like, actually, I'm over there too. So that's, yeah, it's a powerful thing. And, and I, that dream at the beginning of chapter 46 that where, where God appears to, to uh, Israel or to Jacob and he, and he is, is saying, I am the God that was faithful to your yeah. father and to the father before him. But then he reaffirms this promise. I can actually make you a great nation in Egypt too. Yeah. Um, and so you don't have to be afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I that I found so moving as I was reading 46, because traditionally Egypt in the economy of the Old Testament is seen as a place where dreams go to die. Mm. So Egypt is synonymous with exodus, with forced labor, labor yeah. with a yoke that and a burden that you have to carry. Um, and so with bondage even. And so the whole story is we need to get out of Egypt mm -hmm. uh, because we're in bondage and we need to be bonded now to God. Yeah. But here God is saying, I'm bigger yeah. than the narratives that you've created. And so if the moment that you say that I am the God of your father, you're actually saying that I am able to work and have my will done mm -hmm. in Egypt mm -hmm. as well as as well as in Israel. Yeah. And I think that's an invitation for us, Jesse, because you were you were talking a little bit about these boxes that we create, yeah. whether theological or relational, or in this case, geographical. I like my boxes. <laughs> yes. My boxes make my life safe yeah. and they give some sort of sense and meaning to my life. Yeah. I like boxes. The problem is it seems like God isn't as in love with my boxes mm -hmm. as I am. And yeah. so God's constantly pushing, trying to say, oh, you know what? Yeah. I'm there too. Yeah, it's in, I, I, remember I was reading books, um, a book about habits, and it was talking about how habits are actually wonderful good things for us because if you had to think about how to brush your teeth mm -hmm. every single if you had to like literally like figure it out every single time that you were trying to brush your teeth it's just like you would you would take 20 minutes to do it um i have a one-year-old daughter and she has to think through everything <laughs> she's doing and it's really funny because it's simple tasks but then it takes so much longer for it to happen um so that's why habits form because then we just get that in, ingrained in us so habits are a good thing but then habits can become um incredibly oppressive if, if they're the wrong ones. Uh, for instance, we form habits in all sorts of ways. One of those things is based off of trauma. You can form habits of how you might respond to certain uh, stimuli. So every single time that somebody um, is gives you praise because you missed it as a kid, you will just give everything for mm -hmm. that person. And so that's one thing where people can start giving themselves over to relationships and people that they just give them praise on the front end. And that person just feels like this is, they feel magnetically attracted to them because of the trauma and the, the desperate need for their own, their, their own uh, validation. It's, that's a, that's a destructive habit. And so it's that same thing where boxes are actually helpful to us to a certain degree. You need the box of this is the land that God has promised us in order to have some sort of geographic bounds mm -hmm. for where I, where I belong. But if you stick it, if you stick to that so tightly that you remove God, the possibility of God from anywhere else, and I think that's what the story of the Bible does consistently. That's why you have the book of Ruth. It's a story of a woman who is from outside the bounds, mm -hmm. but yet she's more faithful than most Israelites. Mm -hmm. And the story of Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho, it's a story of these people who come from outside. And so if you just stick to the box, you miss God. Um, but at the same time, you almost need, you need some of the body. And that's what's interesting. God is, he, he gives them the, I am going to make you a great nation. You can trust in that. How I do it though, that's the difference. Mm. And I wonder if that's almost what we're really talking about is that God does promise us certain things. He promises us peace. How might look different for mm -hmm. different people. 
And sometimes we get so stuck in the midst of this is how it must come about that that box that we've put ourselves in and mm. God in becomes oppressive to us. And God needs to break us out of it a mm. bit for us to actually see, oh, this is actually good. And he is here too, you know? So, yeah. And that makes us more magnanimous, I think, with other people that aren't in the place that, that we are. Mm -hmm. um, it, it allows us to view people with different understandings of, of who God is and how God moves, not as alien or mm -hmm. as the other. Yeah. The danger when we believe that our box is all there is, is that anyone else who's in that box becomes the other. And mm -hmm. once once we use that language, it's really easy to dehumanize oh, them. Yeah. And once we dehumanize them, it's really easy to begin to use our faith as a, as a tool that we're now weaponizing. Oh, yeah. And so the fact that you're actually pushing this idea of, yes, there is this framework that God has established, but the pathway to this goal mm -hmm. looks different. That I think allows us some flexibility, particularly yeah. as we engage with people who, let's face it, are in a different faith journey than yeah. we are. Absolutely, and I mean, especially if you think about your potentially, you might have kids who they they grow up, or maybe they are grown up at this point, and they don't believe any longer. It's like there is, and, and this is a scary thing, but it, maybe there's a pathway that God has has um, or can work within in their life that all of the all of the the, the stops along the way look like. They're not where you want it to go. But in the end, it turns out that God can reach into their life in mm. a way that you just, you didn't expect. Mm. And so it's one of those things where it's, it's not certainty. We don't know that God can, or can, God will do that, uh, or that they will get it. But it's one of those like helpful things on the, on, uh, for, for us as people. It's like, I can trust that God can work outside of the way that, that I mm. wanted him to originally. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah but we like rigidity. So let's Absolutely. face it, particularly me, and I'm a type A, you all know, I love rigidity. And the Western church, by and large, went the path of rigidity. So mm -hmm. they said, okay, well, you want to have an experience with God. This, these are the things that you do. These are some beautiful confessions that we can all agree upon. The Eastern church has a little bit of a different track. They say that you can find, and just to what you're saying, this is... I mean, it might sound new, but really what we're saying is ingrained in the very origin of Christianity. Yeah. You can find God through two primary ways. Mm -hmm. You can find God, and this is your big word for the day, through the cataphatic way or to the apathetic way. And that is, you find God through the place, through His presence, the places mm -hmm. where He is clear, yeah. the boxes, if you will. But you can also find God through what they call the negative way or the mm -hmm. ways in, or the way in which he appears to be absent. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, gives me a little bit of hope, particularly as I have friends and family who at this particular at this moment in their life have no relationship with yeah. God. But I think there is this absence in their life, and I have to believe, this is where faith comes in, I have to believe that God is working in that and through that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. So we, we find this, this dream, and um, it's a beautiful dream. Verse 3, it says, I am God, the God of your father. This, now we're in 46. Do not be afraid to go to Egypt. I will make you into a great nation. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father and their children and their wives and their carts to Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh had sent to transport them. And so Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them livestock, possessions they acquired. And Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters, and all of his offspring. Mm -hmm. So we're completely out of the box. Yes. <laughs> at this point. Yep. Um, now, when I'm thinking about what it takes then to make this move from this very organized, kind of systematic, very structured way of finding God to maybe finding God in Egypt, which mm -hmm. is, by the way, 
Uh, Joseph in Egypt is the title of this week's lesson. I want to just push this idea of finding, now, not just finding God, but finding mission, purpose, and mm -hmm. meaning mm -hmm. outside of the box. Yeah. Um, so we have Jacob going down to Egypt. We have Joseph meeting his father. We have this whole family now who has stepped out in faith. And then um, Pharaoh... Uh, interviews them. Mm -hmm. And so Joseph tells his uh, his family, verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, uh, on just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So it's not like you leave your whole identity behind. It's mm -hmm. not like you leave your purpose and your passion and your calling behind when you move out of the box. Mm -hmm. You're just you. You're just leveraging those things yeah. in different ways. And I think that's important because uh, God's not calling us to change everything about ourselves. God's yeah. simply calling us to utilize these gifts and these talents, these passions, this purpose that we feel he has placed upon our lives yeah. in a different environment. Did, I don't think I know the cultural context, context for why um, they say that every shepherd is an abomination of the Egyptians. But what I, what I do find interesting is that Joseph seems to encourage them into that, into that mm -hmm. space. And then it says later on in 47 that Pharaoh says, Hey, if any of, if any of the, your family is, is able to, I'll make them like the head of my mm -hmm. my stables. It's one of those funny things that it seems like that when you when you're doing these things that maybe aren't always the the most desirable things of the world around us, uh, the, the roles and the jobs that there is something about that that you can step into if God has called you to it, step into it. And then on the back end of that, there's stuff that you never expected that that could happen. That, that's such an interesting thing to me. Um but that's a that's an aside to to the the greater point that you're trying to make, that they are still themselves even in the midst of a new space, a new land. Whether you've moved to a new place, whether you're in a new role, new job, whatever it is, you're still yourself with everything that God has built into you up until uh -huh. this point. And that wherever you are is the space to live that out to to do what God has has built you to do. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a especially if you're going through transition. That is a powerful thing to, to recognize because you don't have to become a whole new person. Mm -hmm. You're still you with all the history of God's work in your life. That's beautifully stated. And I think that speaks to this idea of maybe re reframing our paradigm. So the way that paradigms happen, T.S. Kuhn, who's this brilliant American writer, writes, for my money, the most seminal book in the 20th century, which is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And Kuhn makes this, this argument that I think is nuanced and is apropos to our point today. He says, when you, when you have a paradigm shift, what you actually have is new information that makes the previous paradigm or mm -hmm. box, to use the language we're using mm -hmm. here, untenable. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you forget all this other information. Yeah. You build your concepts and you build good science based on everything that has happened before. Mm -hmm. You just now live it out in a different way. And it looks different and it feels different, but is it is still, still deeply connected and you're still in dialogue yeah. with your heritage. And I think that's what makes us so leery about the prospect of moving out of our comfort zone, whatever, yeah. whatever that might be, because we feel that what that means is that I have to betray or abandon yeah. who I am. Yeah. And in my case, if you're asking me, well, maybe uh, I, I need to engage with different faith communities and conversations about who God is, mm -hmm. let's say, as a for instance, well, that's nerve-wracking. Yeah. In Adventism, you know this, Jesse, the word ecumenical is a bad word oh, in yeah, Adventism sure. because it's like, well, I'm going to abandon my whole Adventism behind and my identity, and then there's going to be nothing that makes me special. Yeah. And so there's always this reticence uh, in moving beyond the box because we feel we're betraying ourselves, our history, our identity, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I think as you were speaking, it, 
the thought just came to my head that was what's good about a box is that you know what you're bringing with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there's because I guess it, one of the things that I I have learned both as a parent, I used to be a summer camp counselor, um, was that giving kids structure was actually mm-hmm. love. Uh, there was a kid who was just acting up a ton one one year when I was uh, uh, counseling and. Um, I was sub counseling for that cabin. So I was only in for one day while they're, they're counseling their day off. And you had to be a bit tougher on them because you don't want them to love you more than their counselor who has right. to be with them for the rest of the week, you know? <laughs> um, so I was, I was just a little bit more strict on the rules and everything. And there was just one kid who just good kid, just all over the place. And he, um, he, uh, struggled to listen and, and all of those things. I was a bit stricter with him by the end of the week. Um, he wanted me to be with their cabin on the, kind of the, the special Friday night, and around, uh, we you go around a, 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 a torch around the edge of the lake in a sort of a spiritual moment. And he, and he, as like an 11 year old, started to open up to me about his family story and everything. And I remember telling my, my camp director later, I was like, this is so weird because he likes me, but I've been harder on him than anybody else. And my camp director said, yeah, that's because he's interpreting boundaries as love. He doesn't, he probably doesn't have a lot of boundaries mm-hmm. at home. And so what's interesting is that boundaries give us a sense of right or wrong. They give us a sense of what we are and what we aren't. So that's where the box is good. Um, and what I think is helpful in the, you know, we talk about ecumenism, is that how you that's say it? it? Uh, is, is it scary because it's like, well, what if I lose everything? But I think what's actually helpful is to come with some semblance of a box, not the whole box, but like some semblance of a box to to conversations and to experiences with people of other faiths because you know what you're bringing. And I think that's an important piece of, of the different faith perspectives that we have. Mm-hmm. As an Adventist, especially coming with something like, hey, we don't believe that God would burn people forever. And we believe that actually the whole idea of annihilationism is a sense of his love for, for people and, and also him guarding choice, that mm-hmm. you need choice for love. And this is why he would do this. And so actually when you come to conversations with some semblance of the box, you you know what you bring to the table. You have something to bring. If you come with nothing, then you just end up kind of assimilating into mm. whatever is out there, whether it's good or bad. Mm. But if you come with if you only come with the box, if you only come with this is the only way it can be, then you never learn and grow. Right. So I think there's there's a sort of a a, a middle space there. Um of, yeah. of there's a goodness to structure yeah. to some degree. No, absolutely. There's there's kind of this tight rope that we need to walk. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. One of the great things I think of of post the postmodern revolution back in the middle of the 20th century, Jesse, was it forced us to kind of grapple with the why question. Mm-hmm. It's always been this way, wasn't good enough mm-hmm. anymore. And so it did force us to have some conversations with maybe some voices that hadn't always been part of the uh, of the conversation. Yeah. The bad thing is, in that desire to be inclusive, yeah. we lost the capacity to say, no, not all voices are equal at the table. Okay. Human beings have, you know, sat around and we've talked and we've decided, for example, that misogyny is a bad thing. Yeah. We've decided that racism is a bad thing. We've decided that hate speech, those are bad things. Mm-hmm. We've, we've objectively said, no, not all ideas deserve the same amount of time in the marketplace yeah. of thought. But um, what, what we find now that's, that's happening as people kind of begin to maybe ask questions about this whole postmodern milieu that a mm-hmm. lot of us grew up in is, well, is there anything firm and solid that I can use as a starting point, kind yeah. of a semblance of, mm-hmm. of a box, as, as, you're ta- as you're saying? And I think there is. I think to know what that is, though, requires some internal work. Yeah, for sure. It's going to require you look and and kind of utilize some divine discernment and have conversations and listen to who God is Mm -hmm. and what God is calling you to live. Because if I go and I say my box is annihilationism Mm -hmm. because I'm right and you're wrong, that's that usually descends into a debate that nobody wants to have. I think Adventism says we believe in a God that above everything prioritizes choice Mm -hmm. because God loves him freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And so because that is kind of the 
basis on which we operate, that God loves and freedom, mm -hmm. annihilationism is a better option yeah. than all the other options. So mm -hmm. that's my principle. I've done the internal work mm -hmm. um, that I that this is the best thing that we have to offer yeah. uh, when we're trying to say this is who God is. And because I've done this internal conversation and I've gone through my value system, I can then come with a box, but I can also say I'm open yeah. within the parameters of God is the God who loves and freedom mm -hmm. to have that idea expanded upon. Yeah, yeah. And I think you, you need that and you desperately need that because if not, I think one of the, the deep pieces of brokenness within, I will say Adventism, but it's present in nearly every other faith strain um, in Christianity and beyond, um, is that we we think that certainty is is the answer. Mm. That if we had every single thing certain, then everything would be in its rightful place, and we wouldn't have to worry about it. We know we're right, and so we can just go from there, right? But what's interesting is that the God that we're meeting here in the text is not a God of certainty in all things. He's a God of certainty on a, on a select few things. I'm going to I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to make you a great nation, yes. and I'm going to and I'm going to yes. I'm going to keep my promises. Like and I'm, this is what's going to happen. Um, and sorry, and then I'm going to give you a land. That's the other one. Those are what he's certain about. How that comes about is mm. a much wider discussion, and it almost is different for each character right. or each stage of the of the uh, journey of the Israelites, and so. It, it, that's that's a weird space to be in and it's far more complex and it's far more difficult because if you're living in that space of of of, of certainty to to become less certain sounds terrifying um but then what's also funny is there's the other extreme of just oh who knows right but that's not that god that's not the god we're meeting here either right. again he's certain about a few things so who knows what's right that's not i don't think it's a good space and I know everything, or at least my denomination knows everything, is not a good space. But that space in the middle of, I've, I'm fairly certain on a few of these things, but there is an openness to the God that is much bigger than me and my little and my box. Um, that God I'm meeting here, and I'm open to that. Um, yeah, I think that's, man, I just feel like that's, that's a, a piece that sort of heals that that box we've gotten ourselves into of just everything has to be certain. And it, it also allows us, I think, to deal with our trauma in healthier ways. We're mm -hmm. back to kind of connecting everything. And it's, I what I love about what you're saying is it's borne out in the text. Mm -hmm. So all of them are called, because all of them are, are, are Israel now. Mm -hmm. They're all called to the certainty of a promise of a land yeah. and I'm gonna be, make you a great nation. How that happens is different. And so we were chuckling off, off camera a bit about chapter 49 and Jacob blessing his sons and how all of these blessings are different and they look different. Mm -hmm. And some of them are, let's face it, weird. Um, but they're all part and parcel about how the... Uh, of ways in which this certainty becomes fulfilled. So yeah. you are all going to be Israel. Mm -hmm. You are all part of that great nation. That you can hang your hat on. The path to that mm -hmm. is gonna look different. And let's yeah. face it, sometimes is going to be weird. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's when you get to that, That I don't know if we're skipping ahead here, but when you get to 49, um, there there is a, there's also the, you see the results of trauma. Um, as it goes through the the story, you see several of the brothers who they they are born of Leah, mm -hmm. and that is a very traumatic mm -hmm. experience. Uh, her her experience in that marriage is a very traumatic experience because she's never really loved, right? And you can see that everything that she does to have children and every every other aspect of her life is is the result of that. I don't feel loved, and if I just have more kids maybe I'll be loved more. And if I just do more, if I do more, I'll be loved. And then it's so interesting because her, all of her sons uh, or most of her sons are not, they don't have the best blessing no. in this. Um, and I don't think that's to say, I, I think it, we, we kind of get in this space of, of future prediction in, in scripture as being um, airtight. I think mm -hmm. sometimes there is future prediction that is meant to be a warning or a hope for shift, for a shift mm -hmm. in the change. For instance, um, when Samuel says that God has taken away 
uh, your kingdom. And he says that to Saul. Right. Um, I, I don't know how much of that is a future prediction and this is cemented in certain certainty and how much of it is a, this is going to happen. And you see Saul get super paranoid after. Right. So did he self-fulfill that prophecy? It kind of, maybe he did. I wonder if it's similar here that there is a call to us for those of us who have experienced trauma and maybe the children of trauma, um, that, Hey, there's a warning laid out here that if there isn't a shift, if there isn't a move in a different direction in your life, that. There is a, a future mm. in front of you that isn't what you want mm. it to be. And yet God will be faithful, mm -hmm. but there will be a lot of aspects of your life mm -hmm. that don't look like maybe they, they could if, if you were to face it. And so again, it comes to that, that um, idea that trauma is, is deeply damaging to us and to come at it from this aspect of, well, this is just the way I am. I know this is about myself. No, we almost have to come at it. For, I, I know that there can be a shift and a change in my life. Mm. And... That's scary. It's to drop the certainty of this is just the way I am. And okay, Lord, like I'm gonna walk forward with you and well, see what happens. Yeah. I don't know. No, I think you're I think you're you're on to something. And I think that beautifully kind of bookends the this conversation that we've been having today on faith and trauma and how how we step out to where God is calling us. What I love about what you're saying is when God talks about the future. It, he's not cementing what's going to happen to you. Um, I don't think that's the role of prophecy. Um, and we we would we might have to have you back one of these days to talk about prophecy because I think that this is something that we as a as a denomination can benefit a lot from. Mm -hmm. It's not that God is saying this is what's going to happen. There's yeah. no changing that because yeah. after all, we just said that we no prioritize choice. prioritize choice. So I think what God is saying is, hey, watch out for these things. Mm -hmm. If there is no shift, this is where that path leads. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about trauma, that is particularly poignant. Yeah. Because we find that hurt people hurt. Yeah. There is a much higher index of abuse yeah. when you're a victim of abuse. Yeah. And so it's almost as if God is saying, hey, be cognizant of this brokenness and this weakness in your mm -hmm. life because chances are that that's going to be replicated throughout yeah. your life and it's going to affect your yeah. relationship with other people. And so I I just I thought I think that's that's such a a healthy way not only of looking right. at prophecy but of looking at ourselves and mm -hmm. how God is kind of trying to gently stir us to confront these parts of us that are broken. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we can get even down on ourselves and start talking about, well, this is just the course of my life and I guess I'll never change. But there's always that hope. Mm. And you see that with Jacob. Like, I thought my son was gone, but maybe mm. he's not. And and there's always a hope for, for a change with God. And I think that that's something that that is a, a hope and also a challenge to mm -hmm. us. Okay, if, if there can be change, maybe I can face it. Mm. Maybe I can step forward and see what happens. And so, yeah. Yeah, no, Jesse, and it's it's something that we need to be discerning of. So as you were talking a little bit about habits, uh, I was thinking about monastic communities because I tend to do that a lot lately, <laughs> and I find uh, I find some of their uh, their principles, particularly if you're in a Jesuit monastic community. Um, there are some things that I think are are helpful, just mm -hmm. kind of bringing my box, but allowing my box to, to mm -hmm. broaden. So the mantra within a Jesuit monastic community is ora et labora, pray and work. Mm -hmm. And the day is set in, in these rhythms where you go out and you work, mm -hmm. but there's always kind of this bell that tolls yeah. in order to break you away from the routine. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really healthy way of approaching life. Yeah. We come and we build these habits, these habits that are based on our experience with God, on our allowing God to speak into our life, maybe even allowing God to transform us. But we're always open to the possibility of that bell ringing, yeah. calling us towards something different. Absolutely, yeah. I think that the, the journey of, of, of a follower of Jesus it has to be one of just openness. I remember uh, I just recently read a phrase that I, th I thought was um, beautiful, that there's a, a, an, an yieldedness that we mm. have, um, which is a, a, a posture of 
surrender and submission that is open to to what might come. Mm. And I think often we have a, a, a position of surrender to, to God as long as he as long as he is as we've thought of him mm-hmm. as, as being. And as long as he works in the way that we expect him to work. And so as you were saying that there might be this, okay, I'm gonna step forward in life and because I don't think that God is 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 always trying to speak to us at every single moment in in sort of like of some sort of verbal way. So often we're just like waiting for God to do something. I think God's just like, you know, you know, live your life. Mm-hmm. Like live, live your life, do the things that you're doing. But there, if there's a sense of openness and yieldedness to God, then we are far more open to see him where we might not have seen him before. Like when the bell tolls, you know, in our life or when we have those moments where we maybe we maybe we commit to, hey, I want to pray, you know, three times a day or something. And that can kind of be the bell in our life. Um, in those spaces, we start to notice God and God opens our eyes to things mm-hmm. that we had not seen previously, um, to people and situations or, or how we might might work in the world um, that can be meaningful in his work. And so I, I, that idea of, of yieldedness mixed with this, this consistent interruption of God in our life, I think builds a much healthier and robust mm-hmm. disciple, disciple, I think, is really mm-hmm. what, it, what I would say it builds. So, yeah. And it's, it builds an open disciple. Yeah. Because we typically think that in order to fulfill God's purposes for our lives, we need to be in Canaan. Mm-hmm. And here God is saying... I want to fulfill my purpose for you Egypt. in yeah. Egypt. Jesse, yeah. thank you so much. Will for you sure. close us uh, out in, in prayer? Absolutely. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are faithful and consistent. And you were faithful to Jacob and to Joseph, and they were in two different places. And what seemed like the total destruction of your plan, and yet you were faithful to them. And you were faithful to Jacob and Joseph in ways they did not expect. And finally, when you bring them back together, There's a looking back and a recognition of where you were in all of that. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone who's experiencing that that sort of wilderness experience, um, that that I'm not on the path I thought I would be on. I'm not where I expected. Life did not turn out how I hoped it would. Um, But, Lord, I pray that your faithfulness would become apparent to them. Uh, And maybe it's today, maybe it's in two years. But that once they get to that point, that they would be able to look back and say, I see it now. And I trust that you are going to be faithful to me moving forward as well. So whatever you have to work in our lives, Lord, we give it over to you. And we want to have that spirit of yieldedness and openness to how you might be present in Canaan, but also in Egypt. In your name, amen. Amen. So be open, dear friends, to the presence of God, wherever that might be. And more importantly, wherever he may be calling to you. We'll see you next week. God bless and have a happy Sabbath. Mm -hmm.